turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Um, we're going to open to page 1431, the last section in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're still here, which you all are, <laughs> we started this back in March. It's been a bit of a marathon getting through, but I feel like it's just been like... <sighs> I remember having a meal with um, some Sri Lankans uh, many years ago, and Sri Lankans have a habit that once they've finished the chicken in the curry, they then pick up the chicken bones and start gnawing the bones. And as the bones splinter in your mouth, they spit out the bones and keep sucking and sucking and sucking because you're trying to get the marrow out of the bones. Apparently, um, Malaysians do the same, but we don't allow it in my household. So... um, (laughs) But the point is that when you're looking at a passage like this one, um, there's something so rich about it. And I feel quite sad, actually, that we've come to the end of this section because the Sermon on the Mount has just been so profoundly challenging. I've felt, wow, preparing every week, what a privilege it's been for me. And many of you have said how God's been speaking to you through what Christ has said in this um, section. And uh, he really ends on, on some of the, a very, very hard, hard note. It's very, very... Um, stark and difficult and um, confrontational. And so that we just, I want to read, read the passage and then we're going to open it up and try and understand what Jesus is saying to us now. Matthew 7 verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, of course he's speaking in a kind of summary way of everything he's been teaching to that point. Who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes or their their teachers of the law. It's confrontational. A passage like this is going to make us feel very uncomfortable. And uh, generally speaking in life, when situations make us uncomfortable, I think the normal response is to try and get away from those situations, to run away from them. And I just want to say at the start, it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to feel that you're reacting. It's okay to feel that this is harsh or that this is strong or that this is making you feel slightly agitated. If you think about it, um, most of the, the good things that happen in your life are the result, if you trace it back, to some amount of discomfort that either you or someone else on your behalf has experienced. Even just very simple things like eating food is the result of hard work and labor. And even if we're not the ones uh, in the fields, as it were, or wherever you get food from these days, you know, we are um, nevertheless benefiting from someone's discomfort and even of our own. You think about personal growth and character. Usually you grow the most through uncomfortable moments in life. And if life is easy, then really... um, There's nothing to shape you up, nothing to refine you, nothing to cause you to grow. So it's okay to feel uncomfortable, but let me just quickly address some of the reasons why we feel uncomfortable reading a passage like this. One of them has to do with the fact that Jesus is calling for a decision. 
He's calling you, on you, upon you, to make a decision about him, of course. And uh, it's my view that I think there are far too few opportunities in life to make important decisions about life. At least in the normal day-to-day experience of life, how often is it that you sit down and really make life-changing decisions? It's more that we drift, don't we? We tend to sort of gradually make um, course alterations along the way. So actually you should look at this as a positive thing. When Christ is speaking to you and he's calling upon you to make a decision, that's a wonderful thing. Better do that now than you know, in however many years when you reach midlife and have that midlife crisis and you want to take up surfing and buy a motorbike and whatever it is that people do uh, in, their, in their midlife. Or even these days, sometimes in quarter life, isn't it? I think it's become quite a millennial thing that people have all this angst in their mid-twenties when suddenly they realize, you know, what am I here for on this earth? And we have all these questions and so we do silly things. Better that you, you stop and think even just this morning. So he's pushing for a decision. Another thing is that... Um, as I've said already, this is it's a binary thing. Um, it, it, that's to say that he really only gives you two options, which I know is, is massively countercultural these days because generally speaking, uh, we prefer to think about truth in shades of grey. That's certainly the, the kind of cultural norm these days, that we think about um, religion and truth and the big questions along a kind of spectrum of, yeah, we know that's kind of not good and we know that's, that's good and somewhere along the way you're going to muddle through. And Jesus says, no, no, it's very, very stark. And he keeps saying this through the Gospels. He keeps saying, it's either with me or against me. You're either building or you're destroying. You're either on my side or you're, you're my enemy. And I know that immediately that sounds... It sounds very, very odd um, to modern ears because, especially when most people just think, I'm not anyone's enemy, I'm just living a normal, ordinary life. And Jesus really makes it very, very clear that to not be with him is to be on the other side. Now, I know immediately that will switch some people off in some ways, and I just want you to keep with us and bear with us and understand the reason he says that and how he speaks that out of compassion and love for you. Another reason why it's hard is because um, Jesus makes himself the focus of this. Anyone, he says, who hears these words of mine, that might not have, you may not have noticed quite the punch of what he's saying there or the force of it, but think about what he's saying. Imagine if, if anyone were to stand up and say, My teaching, my teaching is the teaching that you must listen to. Really, this is one of the subtle ways in which Jesus is, is making a claim to his divinity. And a lot of people have heard this sort of thing, and they said, look, he has to be either arrogant or just massively deluded. But I would challenge you to think, look, when you, when you understand Christ, his whole life, his story, what he did, what he did on your behalf, he, of all people, has a right to claim authority. And look, what's your alternative? You can't go through life pretending you don't have an authority on which you're building your life. We all do, even if it's unspoken or even unthought. And if you don't make Christ your authority, then something else will become your authority by default. And usually it's just whatever seems right to me. And so I ask you, when you put it as clearly as that, what makes more sense? To go along with what you think 
is right in life and truth is, or to, to actually listen to someone who has stood the test of time, stood the test of the centuries and of the millennia as being one whose teaching we can build our lives upon. So please, let's consider then what he's saying. And I think it comes down to three things. You need, um, you need a seminary degree to work this stuff out, and it comes down to these three points. You can build on rock, you can't build on sand, and you get to decide where to build. You can build on rock, you can't build on sand, and you get to decide where to build. Let's think about each of those in turn. Firstly, that you can build on rock. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So, first question. Who is Jesus describing here? We need to be very clear. If you've read and were with us for the previous weeks, we need to be very clear that he's not talking about people who just claim that they're Christians. So the mere fact that you may be a churchgoer does not put you in the category of the wise. The reason I say that is because Jesus is very clear that you not only hear but you also become a doer. In other words, that you not only say, oh, I believe this stuff, and you feel a kind of a belief in your heart that it is true, but that your belief is proved by the way you then live and by your actions that result from it. Because really your actions are the truth about what you believe. Let me give you some examples to help you understand what I'm talking about. When, um, when I go down the street and I... You, you, I'm accosted by um, one of those guys that we call charity muggers. The guys in the vests who always smile and are always extroverts. And I, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm like, get out of my face. Anyway, so those guys. One of the questions I lo- I've liked asking them in the past is whether they give to the charity that they are selling for. And I'm sure some of them do. But I'm guessing most of them don't because really they're paid to be there. So how sincere they are is questionable, isn't it? So you immediately, the question is, well, if you're really, really... You know, so convinced about this, this charity and the good work it's doing, why don't you literally put your money where your mouth is? Another example, if, um, if you were, you know, I'm, we really need to engage our imagination here, but let's say you were wealthy. Let's say that you had lots of, um, lots of cash and you wanted to invest your, your thousands of pounds somewhere. You might go and speak to somebody who, who manages funds, an investment manager or something, and they, they might convince you, look, if you spread your portfolio across these investments, then you're guaranteed to get a return of this rate within this amount of time. And the question you really ought to be asking them is, well, where do you invest your money? Or to give you another example, are any of you planning to go to Winter Wonderland um, in Hyde Park? I love Winter Wonderland. I think the fact that the rides... <laughs> I think the fact that the rides look so rickety just makes it all the more exciting. But um, do not go with my wife, by the way, because she always pressures everyone who's with her to go on any of the rides. And often she's been pregnant when we've been there and so has had an excuse. Last year, my dad had, um, went hyperglycemic. He's a diabetic um, as a result of going on the rides. I think it actually put him into shock. And he was pressured into it by my wife. Anyway... The question like, that you want to ask when you're going on these rides um, is really whether the people who, who constructed them want to go on them. <laughs> now, I hope you're getting my point here, that when people say, I believe something, 
really the only proof that you can ever have of whether they, they really believe it is, is what they do as a result, whether their belief and their actions match up. And that's exactly what the Bible says about faith in Jesus. It says things like this in James. It says, so faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In other words, if you don't also live like you believe, then your faith isn't real in the first place. And he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. My works, in other words, are the proof of my faith. So when Jesus says here, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. His point is a very simple one, that he's not interested in people who are mere note takers. A lot of people take notes in sermons. You can imagine people were taking mental notes as he was teaching them. And he was really not interested in in those who just learned what he said. He wanted people to obey it, actually do it. Okay, let's move on. Next question then. Who are the wise? He says, not everyone who says to me, sorry, I'm reading the the wrong verse there. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Wisdom in the Bible is not just intelligence or knowledge. It can involve something of those things, but it's very easy to to think of people you know who are very intelligent, very knowledgeable, and who are also fools. Now, just to give you, sort of help you understand what I'm talking about here, have you noticed there's, there's a massive trend these days for um, sort of life, life wisdom and life hacks? So a lot of the blogs that float around and pop up on all, the, you know, all over the place have to do with how to make your life more productive, more efficient, Ten ways to manage your email better, or to, to, to seven things you need to do before breakfast to have a productive day, and this kind of stuff, right? And one of the questions that it provokes in me, and you know, I, I think that's why it's intelligent, I should say. It's intelligent, knowledgeable stuff. It's just learning how to, to be a smart person, a smart worker. But a wise person isn't just saying, how can I be more effective and more efficient at doing what I'm doing? A wise person, in, in Christ's analysis of what wisdom is, asks, why am I doing it in the first place? So wisdom is the ability to step back and look at the big picture of your life and understand, what are you doing it for? Or what are you building is the, the picture that Jesus is giving us here. You can have the most successful life imaginable and still be a fool in the, in the Bible's eyes. Because everything you're building is ultimately sinking, as we'll see. So he wants obedient people and he wants people who understand where, why they're building and what they're building. So if we could sum it up like this, the picture of the wise person that he's describing here is somebody who has looked at Christ and said, Jesus, you are more solid than anything else that I can build upon. And it's not that you've turned your back on everything else in life. It's not that you've turned your back on the good things that are around you, like work and family and relationships and all the stuff of what normal life is made of. It's rather that you've brought all of that into subservience to the will of Jesus Christ. So instead of Jesus being a kind of a block in your building, he's rather the foundation upon which everything is structured. And sometimes it means turning your back on all kinds of things, and sometimes it means embracing all kinds of things, but always it means making every decision in the light of who Jesus is and his, his, his total, total, all-encompassing, authoritative claim upon your life. 
That's what he's talking about here when he speaks about the wise person. Then the question he wants us to ask is this. Does it work? It's very, very hard, isn't it, to assess what works in life because even the criteria by which you bring to decide whether something is working or not, whether it's successful or not, shapes the answers that you get. But listen, here is one unfailing test that always shows whether someone's worldview is a solid one or a shaky one. And it's the test of suffering. That's what Jesus is describing here. He says, The rain fell, verse 25, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And here's the point. That a Christian who knows Christ, whose whole life, everything you are, is built upon Jesus, is a person who can be hit by anything and still know that your foundation is secure. You know it because you have certain convictions that flow from your faith in Jesus. For example, you know things like this, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, that for those who love God... All things, and he means all kinds of suffering and difficult circumstances as well as the good stuff. He says all of it works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You remember at the very beginning I read to you from Psalm 3 where David is on the run from his son Absalom who wants to kill him. And I love verse 5 how David puts it like this. He just says, very matter of fact, he says, I lay down and slept. And we're supposed to take note of that. It's quite a normal thing to do, isn't it? But have you ever... I mean, how easy do you think it is to sleep when when your murderer could creep up on you at any moment? I lay down and slept, he says, and I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. Now, we find it hard to sleep when we have an essay to hand in the next day or... You know, when we're we're going to ask that person out or something like this, we find it hard to sleep just in normal circumstances. And David's saying, I lay down and slept and I woke again because the Lord sustained me. And then he goes on and says, I'll not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And the picture that he's painting is of a person whose life is not just sweet in the good times, but also there's there's something solid about them in the face of very, very difficult circumstances. The great example, of course, of this is Job, the very first song we sang, which I didn't ask Brandon to choose, but which um, really resonated with what we were talking about here. You give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The line in that song comes straight from the book of Job. Job has just lost his entire family and all his livestock in one fell swoop. And instead of cursing God, He turns and says, you give, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. His foundation was totally solid. It reminded me of the story of a man called Horatio Spafford, which you can imagine um, he was around in the olden days with a name like that. Anyway, Horatio wrote a hymn, a very famous hymn. And the backstory is really important. He was from Chicago and he was a businessman. He had a lot of property in Chicago. And in 1871, the great Chicago fire hit. 
And as a result, his investments were obliterated. A couple of years later, he sent his family across on a ship to Europe. And he was held back because he was involved in in rebuilding his business. And there were some meetings he had to go to to do with zoning laws in Chicago. His wife and four daughters were on a ship heading over to Europe. And it collided with another vessel in mid-Atlantic. And it sunk. He received a telegram from his wife, which famously, his wife Anna, which famously she survived. It said only two words, saved alone. And Mr. Spafford, obviously struck by grief, went across the Atlantic in a ship as soon as possible to go and join his wife Anna. And on the way across, as he reached the point nearest to where the other ship had sunk and his daughters had found their grave in the ocean. He penned the hymn which goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. So either when life is going sweet like a bubbling brook or the waves are crashing down upon me, the cold, hard waves are beating down on me. He says, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to to know it is well, it is well with my soul. And he goes on. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You have to hear the note of compassion in what Christ is saying here. That whilst his words are hard, his words carry a note of warning because he wants you to understand that suffering will hit you And that will be the test of what your life is built upon. Let's move on. You can build on rock, you cannot build on sand, he says. In the next verse he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now here's the question that you should be wrestling with right now. What are you running after in life? What are you building is the analogy Jesus uses. What is your life about? What's it lived for? What's the greater purpose? What's the telos, the end that you see your life being about? And how lasting is that thing? I think that's actually a very, very difficult question to answer, but Let me offer you some possibilities. I think a lot of people live for pleasure. I think most people would say that the the purpose of life, as far as we can discern it, is to be happy. And we say happiness comes from pleasure. But how lasting are the pleasures that you enjoy? I think it's one of the great tragedies of our culture that we, the, the elderly are hidden away from us. They're not on TV and we put them in homes away out of our life and out of our relationships. Why? Because they're a reminder that the pleasures that you enjoy now will not last. What will you be left with when you get there? There's a story of Moses. Remember, he's the prince of Egypt, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, grew up in the palace. He has everything at his disposal. 
And he makes a choice in a pivotal moment in his life to be counted with the Hebrews instead of to be an Egyptian. And it says this in the Bible about that choice. It says, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. In other words, to embrace hardship, suffering, a difficult life, than to enjoy what it says here is the fleeting pleasures of sin. The short-lived, quick fuse, short-fix pleasures of sin. And it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he is looking to the reward. In other words, he thought that he actually gained more in what he left behind by embracing Jesus. Because he said, everything I have in Christ outweighs everything that I've left behind. And the reason is not because he's, he doesn't want joy. It's not because he's turning his back on joy. It's because he says, I can find a greater joy in Christ. I'm looking to the reward that Christ gives. In other words, the structure that will last, that will stand through the storm, not only of suffering in life, but also through death. What are you living for? If you're living for pleasure, if you're living for happiness, if your decisions, the kind of decisions you're making right now are really about happiness now, remember, it doesn't last. We can think about how people pour their life into the pursuit of, of wealth. And Jesus tells a story about a man who does that. He just accumulates more and more and more and more. And then a word comes to him from God. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Everything you've accumulated is not yours anymore. We think about sexual pleasure and conquest. I think that we're pretty much mad with sex these days. The book of Proverbs describes the temporary nature of the pleasure that comes from it in this way. Speaking to a young man, he says, the lips of a forbidden woman, he's really speaking about someone who's married to someone else or a prostitute or whatever. He says, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. He's saying she seems so attractive and so seductive. He says, but in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to the grave. Whatever gain you had in that moment is lost as quickly as you gained it. I think a lot of people live with the guilt, the shame, really, of the promiscuity of life. And they wake up, whatever pleasure you had, you wake up the very next morning feeling ashamed and dirty. It doesn't last, does it? And yet we keep trying to fill the hole with the same old things. Achievements don't last. Power doesn't last. We could go on. The trouble is, as I see it though, is that if you're a person who doesn't trust Jesus enough to obey him, and put your faith in him by action and do what he says, then the likelihood is as well that you're not trusting him enough to hear the warnings. It's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? How will you hear what he's saying to you? And if I could just sort of arrest you with one thought this morning, it would be this. What happens when it inevitably goes wrong? You see... I think that 
and I don't mean this to sound offensive if it's not true of you, but I think that the general reality is that we live very easy lives, comparatively, relatively speaking. You woke up this morning, you took it for granted that you could have a hot shower and a slice of toast and a cup of coffee, clothes on your back. You are all clothed, I can see it. These things are the kind of stuff that makes life fairly easy in the grand scheme of things because you can't always take these things for granted. We live privileged lives. We live lives that often, not always, and I know this isn't true for all of us, but often are siloed off from, from real pain, real hardship, real suffering. But it does hit you at some point. You can't avoid it. For as long as you're alive, bad things are going to happen. What will you do when it does? Will you run to the same kind of comforts, but maybe more deeply to those comforts? How we escape in our minds in entertainment. This is why people turn to alcohol. It's really just a way to, to deal with pain. It's why people turn to drugs. A healthy, whole person doesn't need these things. People who are suffering and who are struggling inside, who, who cannot face life, they turn to these things because they need something to heal the pain. Other people turn to success and hard work and achievement. It's all the same root, ultimately, that when life is difficult, we do things to fill up our lives and fill the needs in our hearts. But the trouble is that all of it is short-lived ultimately. My hope is maybe that this morning Christ will arrest one or two of you, with, get your attention I mean. In the way that he describes it in the life of the prodigal son. Do you remember how he goes away and spends all of his inheritance on profligate living? Prostitutes, partying, all of it. Until he has nothing left. And at that point he can either just carry on living and go deeper and deeper into the the pigsty that is literally his life. He lives in a pigsty at that point. Or, the way Jesus puts it is, he came to his senses. There was a moment when he could make a decision and he made the right one. For him, it was coming back to his father who is a picture, of course, of God and his love and acceptance that even if you've done a an uncountable number of wrong things that you know have offended God, the minute you turn round and walk back to him, the picture in Jesus' parable is that the father, approached by his son, runs across the field to go and embrace his son. Everything is forgotten. He is just so glad to have him back. You can't build on sand, friends. The greatest danger, however, that any of you could face, if it is the case that you are building in this way upon sand, is that you'll never be touched by enough suffering to get your attention. A picture that came to my mind of this was, do you remember, it was actually the very same Christmas that Sian and I started going out. A day or two later, we heard the news of the tsunami that hit the, um, the whole of, the, of, the, uh, of uh, Southeast Asia, and particularly Indonesia. Killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Do you remember how we learned 
on the news about what happens in a tsunami. You've been to the beach. Every time a, a wave is about to come, the water recedes and then it falls onto the sand. And then it recedes and it falls onto the sand. When a tsunami is about to ha- happen, that takes place on a great scale. The waters rush out and out and out and out and out to sea before a great wave is about to wash down upon the beach. One or two people knew from the sign, the danger therein got people up to high ground. But by and large, no one knew what was happening. And you could imagine, imagine that's your life. Your life is that you're stood on the beach. The danger is the water. But it's never touching you. And in fact, it seems to you that it's just receding and receding away from you. Your life is comfortable. You are, you, it feels as though you're on solid ground. The danger is moving away from you. But you see, the more it moves away from you, the more danger you're in. Because the more deceived you are. And as surely as the wave came crashing down upon those many thousands of people, even if suffering never touches you in life, death is going to touch you. Psalm 32, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. In other words, you need to do something about your situation right now because there will come a point at which it is too late. Offer a prayer at a time when God may be found. Here's my final point. You get to decide where you build. It's interesting. Jesus is preaching to thousands of people on this occasion on this hillside. And it's so interesting how it ends. It says, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Many of the commentators point out that that's not enough. Matthew is not saying, oh, what a wonderful, great thing that is. In fact, if, any, if you read in and read on in, in the story, it's actually a very tragic thing. That they're astonished at his teaching, but are not enough to do anything about it. Jesus is not interested in in, in fans. I think a lot of people are admirers of Jesus. But he, he isn't interested in people who have just become his kind of his fan club. He's only interested in people who will become disciples. A disciple follows a master, does what they do. And what it comes down to is this that he's trying to push people towards the end of this sermon, he's trying to push people towards this decision that I mentioned right at the start. And on the one hand, it's a one-off decision that you get to make at the beginning of the Christian life. It's as though you're at a fork in the road and the signpost tells you the way of Jesus and every other way. To be a Christian is just to say, I choose Jesus' way. And it happens, it can happen really in such a momentary, stark way for many. But also, to be a Christian is not only to choose that path, but it's to keep walking along that path. Because no sooner are you on it, than you will find all kinds of things seeking to, to batter your faith, 
through, through difficult stuff or to seduce you through the allure and the pleasures that lie to the left and to the right. What I'm trying to help you to see is that you are making decisions right now that are either building on rock or building on sand. It may be a relationship that you're in. And you know that this relationship is is forcing you to choose between Jesus and this person because instead of them walking with you in Christ, there's actually a tear, a wrench, a pulling apart. It may be your work or the or the calling you think that you're called upon, when in fact, if anything, even though you told yourself that you were doing it for Jesus, if anything, it's pulling you away from him because it's become your idol, your God, the thing you live for. It can be any number of temptations that we struggle with, but which when they gain the upper hand, start to destroy your sense of nearness to Jesus, your sense of love for him, your affection for him, and ultimately give birth to more and more bad decisions the more you indulge them. And my question is this. I don't need to keep listing it because I think whenever we look at this kind of stuff, the Holy Spirit starts talking to people bringing stuff to mind. That's his grace. That's his mercy, by the way. You're in trouble when that doesn't happen. That's what the Bible tells us. It's when he just says, fine, just go your own way, and you stop hearing his voice. That's when you should be nervous. But when the Holy Spirit is bringing things to mind and saying, my dear child, I want you to build on the rock in this part of your life. That's when you have to make a decision. Paul puts it like this. He says, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying, keep obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit as he's leading you. And he goes on, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We're not rushing ahead. We're not falling behind. We're not tearing off to the left or to the right. We sense that the Holy Spirit is drawing us back to himself and we say, Lord, I want to hold on to your robe and walk with you. That's what building on the rock is all about. I'm not trying to give you the impression that your life is insecure if you're not perfect. Because remember, it's not so much about the integrity of the building, but rather where the building is placed. And even very weak Christian lives built upon Christ are much stronger than, the most, than a fortress that's built on the beach. So friend, please don't take away from this any condemnation. Christ wants to just keep you on the rock. That's the important thing. But what about those of you who maybe are, are, are genuinely torn and you're not sure if you even want to choose Christ in the first place. Let me, as I close, give you four very brief reasons. I mean, for me, it's why wouldn't you? He's the most compelling, attractive person in history. And 
the facts of his life convince me without a shadow of a doubt that he is who he claimed to be, that he's a son of God, that he rose from the dead. I cannot explain these things any other way than them being true. And I can talk with you at length about why that's the case. Please ask me, email me, contact me. I don't care how you get in touch. I just would love to talk with you. At least lay it all before you. So for me, I think, why wouldn't you choose Christ? But I think there are reasons, and I want to give you four why people don't, and they don't do it immediately. One might be the fear of the consequences. Because, I mean, just, just one is that then you have to call yourself a Christian. It's, it's embarrassing. I mean, Coyote was saying this. Was it? No, it wasn't you, was it? Shadi was telling us this. I mean, Coyote gets it at work all the time. He can, his colleagues are, you know, they lay into him about it being a Christian. I mean, Shadi overheard a conversation at work this week when the guy said, you know, oh, that guy's not very interesting. He's a Christian. And, um, you know, as though, you know, we're a group of just, just weirdos. And maybe it's true. Maybe some of us are. But, you know, fear of the consequences. What, what Christ might tell you to do with your life. What, what obedience would look like. So many people are afraid of becoming a Christian. But please, please, remember what wisdom is. It's the ability to step back and look at it in the big picture and say, it's actually worth it. Every Christian has, has made that calculation at some point. They've said, yeah, there's a cost. But seriously, it's worth it. Fear of consequences. Secondly, uncertainty about the facts. It may just be the case that you just don't know enough about him to make a decision. My encouragement to you is he's too important to sidestep or ignore or dismiss out of hand. You have to know about Jesus. You have to know enough about him to know whether he is who he said he was and make a decision about him. You can talk to me. Any number of us would love to answer your questions. There's books I can recommend, whatever. A third reason is because of conflicting desires. You know what you'd have to give up. And it's got too much of a hold upon you. No one ever said that to become a Christian was painless. Jesus calls it death. Death at the beginning, death every day. He said, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross and die. And that, it can't mean anything other than that there are things you have to just stop. Desires you have to kill. Not so that you can be a kind of maimed, muted, mutilated, castrated shadow of a person. But rather so that you can experience the fullness of life that Brandon was describing in the worship. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's saying, I offer you something better if only you'll see it. And lastly, some people don't make this decision because of procrastination. This one is the one that I find most difficult to understand and get my head around. When people, when I'm talking with people about Jesus and they say, I'd like to follow him, but one day. I do believe in him, but just at the moment, I just want to live my life for now. 
I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't met someone whose life was, wasn't taken unexpectedly. You cannot guarantee tomorrow. Procrastination is an enemy to your own soul. And I encourage you with all my heart, do something right now. Jesus wants to leave us with this hanging question as he finishes his sermon, stands up and starts walking off down the mountain. He leaves everyone there with the question, what will you do? We're going to take communion. And I think it's just such a great opportunity. If you're a Christian, to take communion, the bread and the wine, as an act of deciding to follow Jesus. If your heart says, yes, and I want more of you, Christ, and I want to keep building on the rock. We can take it in thanksgiving for everything that we've been hearing in this sermon. How powerfully life-changing his teaching has been and is. And if you're not a Christian, and maybe today you've been provoked to think, and perhaps... You thought, I want to follow Jesus. I encourage you to say a very simple prayer to him. It might be something like, Lord Jesus, forgive me for everything I've done that's wrong. Enable me to follow you from today. And you can take communion for the first time because this is for people who who are Christ followers. It represents his body, his blood. It represents the sacrifice he paid to cover your sin. So I'm going to hand out the bread and in the quiet, Let's take communion as a celebration of thanksgiving, of rededication, of joy in our Savior, and of his rock-like character. Amen.